My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and uh, really, really, really glad that you guys uh, are, are here with us today. We um, are in a series right now called The Art of Neighboring, and the idea behind this series actually goes back to the beginning of, of, of Grace Church. The, the series is about uh, loving our, our neighbors. Jesus was asked one time uh, by a lawyer who was trying to embarrass Jesus in front of a large crowd of people. He's trying to catch him up in his words so that he could discredit him. He was asked, what's the most important law in the whole Bible? Which is a smart question for him to ask since he's a lawyer. So he was an expert in Jewish law wanting to trip Jesus up in Jewish law. So it was his area of expertise. Uh, I think he figured that if he can invite Jesus into his backyard, he'd be able to whoop up on him. And the idea he was going for is if he could ask Jesus what's the most important law, this guy would say, this is the most important law, and by inference, de-emphasize all of the other laws. And I think that that was the, the tack the guy was going for. He said, well, why is this important? Well, what are you trying to say about all the rest of the laws? And he's just trying to weaken Jesus. It wasn't like a really big argument. Like it wouldn't have been like a huge knock against Jesus' credibility, but it would weaken his credibility a little bit. And the way Jesus answered the question uh, caught the guy by surprise. Jesus said, well, the most important law in the whole Bible is actually two parts. Number one is this, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he said this. Now, if he had just stopped there, he could have said, well, what about all the other 600 laws? What are you saying about those? But here's what Jesus said. He added, all of the rest of the laws come from these two. So he answered the guy's question without de-emphasizing any of the laws of Moses and kind of shut the guy up. But the follow-up question was, well, who's my neighbor? The Bible says the guy asked this question because he wanted to justify his rudeness to certain classes, certain groups of people. And so to this guy, Jesus wanted to highlight, your neighbors are those who do not share your race. And so he uses a story of the Good Samaritan. You probably, the, the hospital in Brockton is named after that story. And you can look it up on your, on your own time if you want. We talked about that two weeks ago. But what we've done is, because of the way Jesus applied it to that one guy, being people of other groups, here we are 2,000 years later, and Christians say, well, we love our neighbors, meaning that we love all people. So we say, I love, I love orphans in Guatemala. I love poor people on the other side of town. I, I love uh, 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 children with AIDS in Africa. We love street kids in Burma and uh, uh, the poor and impoverished and Mongolian. Grace Church has projects in all of these places, and yes, we love them, but as long as we keep this loving our neighbor thing in this generic, fuzzy, uh, uh, broad term, then, then it, and, and it's nameless and, and, and faceless, then loving our neighbor never actually costs us anything. And what ends up happening is we could actually live 20 years next to somebody and have actually made no difference in their life. So the idea behind the whole series is, what if when Jesus said to love your neighbor, he actually meant your neighbor neighbor, right? Like the people who live actually closest to you in proximity. We said that there would be two reasons why you would struggle with this. Number one is time. I mean, who's got the time to invest in all the people who live around us? I mean, uh, you know, to help them mow their grass or fix a fence or trim back a bush or... Uh, uh, a snow shovel their sidewalk. I mean, who has time for this? But the truth is we have time for what we want. Now, I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. None of us have extra time, but all of us are given the same amount of time, which is what we do with that time that, ma that makes the difference. Because while I say I don't have any extra time to add to my schedule, I still watched two extra episodes of The Office last night, season eight. Because I'm, I'm in the middle of a five-week marathon right now on, on Office, on Netflix, and I'm up to season eight, episode 23. And I still caught two extra episodes. You know what I mean? So the truth is, you make time for what you want. 
We're just not wanting the right things. So we talked about if we could buy back half of the time we waste and just use half of it a little bit wiser, then we could begin making a difference in the lives of those around us. That's what we talked about time. And then last week, uh, Pastor Chris from Encounter Church talked about fear. We're afraid of, of walking across the street and introducing ourselves, or actually getting into a real conversation more than how's the weather with our next door neighbor uh, to the side of us. Or maybe we're just afraid of our neighbor because they're sketchy. And if you don't have any sketchy neighbors, you're the sketchy neighbor. Because <laughs> everybody has sketchy neighbors, okay? So seriously, you're going, ah, oh, there's really nobody freaky on our street. You're the freaky person. It's, it's you, all right? Um, this week, we were supposed to wrap up the series. Uh, but, but we're not. We're extending it one week and didn't decide to do this until Friday morning after this weekend's teaching was already done. So the good news is I've already got my outline for next weekend. Uh, but Friday, I went to the dentist office in Canton with, with my son, Ryan, who had two teeth pulled, baby teeth that were blocking the daddy teeth above him. And, uh, uh, and I took a book out of my office that I've been meaning to read for a while and just never had. It's been sitting there. Anybody else buy books on Amazon because you like getting presents in the mail? <laughs> and, then you're done, right? and we don't read all the books. So I grabbed this. And I was like, I need to read this. I've always wanted to read it. I got through the first chapter, and I felt like the author did one of those hashtag boom, dropped the mic, and walked off. I didn't even finish the book because like, the guy was just so in my face. I read a story about a guy named Evan Roberts, and nobody here has ever heard of Evan Roberts. I'd never heard of Evan Roberts, so don't feel bad if you haven't. Evan Roberts lived in Wales over 100 years ago. He was born in 1878, and from the time that he was 11 years old to the time he was 23, he was a coal miner. Can you imagine being 11 or 12 years old and being a coal miner? That's a rough life. Would you agree? But he was raised in a Christian family. He went to church every single weekend, but not like a regular churchy family. You know where like church was like this thing that you did on the weekends? But like God was like a big part of this 11-year-old's life. Like he thought about God on a regular basis. Not in like a psycho, think about drawing like weird pictures on your bedroom wall kind of a psycho thinking about God. The guy talked to God. He prayed on a regular basis from the time he was 11 to the time he was 23. He just spent that time praying over his friends who were at work with him, friends he grew up with, the other workers in the coal mine with him, praying over the people of Wales. He took his faith serious is all I'm saying. At the age of 20, 24, he went to a... Uh, uh, a preacher, a, 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 a church meeting uh, two, two or three towns away, and the preacher was speaking, and it, it like it radically impacted his life. Now, during his teen years, he'd had a, an all-in moment with God where he was like, this is real for me. It's not just my mom and dad's faith. This is my faith too. And that's when he became serious about praying to God on a regular basis, asking God to use him however he would see fit. When he was 24, he heard a sermon that changed the rest of his whole life. He spent the next three months as an intern with that preacher, then came back to his home church of 17 people. Now, you know, in a church of 17 people, everybody's related to everybody else in a church that small, right? But his sermon followed a four-point outline. Here's what his sermon was. The first point was this, confess every known sin to God and receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Number two was, Remove every doubtful habit from your life. Now, I can confess my sins, the obvious rights and wrongs, but the doubtful habits, see, there's things that are part of my life that I wouldn't say and nobody else would say, well, that's definitely a sin, but it's doubtful. It may or may not be the best thing kind of a deal. He said, if you're going to get serious about God, remove the doubtful habits from your life. Number three, he said, was, was to obey the Holy Spirit's prompting immediately. So if God put it in my heart, to say something, then say something, or, or to not say something that I really want to say because it would get them really good, then I don't say it. 
or an act of generosity or self-sacrifice. The moment God puts in your heart an idea that would bring him glory or others good, do it immediately. And number four, don't keep your faith private. Go public with your faith. That was his outline. 24 years old. His big dream prayer, he actually wrote his prayer down. Dear God, in my lifetime, let 100,000 of my fellow Welsh come to faith in Jesus. Dear God, please. Now see, we have a similar dream. My dream is for every one of my neighbors and friends to come to faith in Jesus, or at least to get one opportunity to. Me, like you, most of my friends are great people. That's why they're my friends. They're just disconnected from God. Not because they're jerks, pagans, or, you know, anti-God or anything. That's just not really a part of their life. That's actually how our church got started. My wife and I moved here in 2001 to be a professor at a college, not to start a church. But I was a Christian, a committed follower of Jesus, living on Seaver Street in Stoughton, and nobody else on Seaver Street was super religious. And it was my non-religious neighbors who had a spiritual conversation with me one day that led to another conversation that led to another conversation. And my neighbor across the street had a friend attempt suicide and she went to go visit her in the hospital. And she knocked on my door and said, my friend attempted suicide and I told her she needed God and that my neighbor knows him. Would you go tell her about God? That's not, not, nobody puts that on a strategy for starting a church. They want people who are not really churchy to start a church for me, right? But if you being, if, you, if to whatever degree you claim your own faith, if you do claim faith and a friend said, I told a friend you knew God, would you go tell him something? How can you say no to that without feeling like a complete fraud? So I had to say yes. So we're in the hospital and my non-religious at the time, but spiritually interested neighbor says to her friend who's in the hospital, you need to be in a Bible study. If Sean and Billy Jane started a Bible study in their house, would you go to it? And the girl in the hospital bed said, yeah, if you and your husband will go. She goes, okay, Sean. <laughs> so the truth is, since the very beginning of Grace Church, Grace Church has been in existence for those who are not a part of church. See, the church isn't for Christians. The church is Christians, and we've never been called to be about ourselves. Grace Church is here for all of our neighbors. That's who we're here for. But this really isn't a big priority to us because we're distracted. We're distracted by making more money, by getting another promotion, by getting healthy again, or by making sure our kids get scholarships, or, or getting respect, or getting more followers on our blog, or Instagram, or whatever it is you're in, Right? These things consume us, and we live distracted lives because we don't take into, into consideration the consequences of the choices that we make on a regular basis. So we're going to start today in Acts chapter 17. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go there. If not, the words will be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul is getting an opportunity to speak about Jesus in the city of Athens. Now, you go all over Europe today, and there's beautiful ancient cathedrals, but empty cathedrals, just like there are here in New England. There's churches everywhere, just sadly they're empty, right? Or they're dead, they're dying, they're being converted into condos or, or theaters or tea rooms or an, antique shops. Well, in, in Paul's day, there weren't even empty cathedrals. This was the first time Christianity had made it this far west throughout the Roman Empire because Christianity started in Jerusalem with a bunch of Jewish people who actually saw Jesus alive after they had seen him resurrected. Now that'll change your religion, right? You actually see somebody die and see them alive again. 
you're going to start following that dude and you ain't going to be able to keep that quiet. So it spreads throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Caesar had said, these followers of Christos have turned the world upside down. It was spreading so fast because of the number of eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus alive. Paul's preaching for the first time in Athens, and they are very religious in that they have a God to everything they can think of. They have so many gods, so many statues, so many temples, that they even have a statue that says its engraving was to the God we might have forgot. So when Paul gets an opportunity to, he stands in line at the Areopagus, which was a, a public forum where new thoughts throughout the Roman Empire could be presented and then debated and argued. Paul gets his opportunity, he stands up at the Areopagus and he says, I want to talk to you about the God you accidentally forgot. So everybody's like listening, oh no, we forgot one? So he's piqued their interest and he starts this way in chapter 17, verse 19, excuse me, verse, verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And no doubt, Paul's pointing to some of the buildings all around. He doesn't, he's the creator of all of this. He doesn't need to live in one of these things. So they're, they're listening with rapt attention, right? Like focusing on every word he says. And human hands, verse 25, can't serve his needs because he doesn't have any needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every needs. He's the one who makes sure you have what you have to make sure you make it to the next day. He's the source of all that is good. From one man, it says in verse 26, he created all of the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. What Paul is saying is this God that you forgot is so big, not only did he create everything, he doesn't even need you. In fact, he's the one who gave you breath. He's the one that chose the day you would be born, the day you would die, where you would be born and who you'd be born to. He's the one who even determined where you would live. All of human history is in the palm of his hands. That's who this God is. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after him and perhaps maybe feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of you. So I think there's a lot of us that we're searching after God. We feel like he's way, 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 way far away. And he said, listen, he's all along been hoping you would seek after him. And he's not as far away from you as you think he is. He's not that far from you. Keep reading. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, and he begins quoting some of their poetry. Man, this is brilliant if you're trying to, to establish a connection with a hostile audience. He's looking for things within their culture that he can redeem for the glory of God. Things in their culture that they can, he can stand on and use to point to Jesus. He said, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Now listen, and this is a little bit of a warning. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in the past. But now that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. How many people does God want to turn away from their sins and turn to him? How many people? All of them. Everyone, everywhere. To turn from sin. What is sin? Sin is disobedience to God and selfishness towards others. The thing is, is we don't really think that we have that much sin. We don't think we're all that bad because we compare ourselves to other people who've sinned against God and are selfish to our fellow man. And yeah, I've lied, but I'm not as much of a liar as that person. Point to your neighbor. <laughs> don't, don't actually do that. You know, I swear, but not as much as they swear. I've made some mistakes, but not like they've made. Right? But all of us have sinned. 
Proof? Let's just go to God's laws. What are you? You might know the Ten Commandments. You've at least heard of the Ten Commandments. Let's see how many of the Ten Commandments we pass. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't have any other gods. What is a God? A God is something that your life exists for, revolves around. How many of us have ever had our lives revolve around anything or anyone other than God? Put your hand up. My hand goes up. See, my God, the God in my life at times has been my family. The God in my life has been my marriage. The God in my life has been my kids. There have been times when the God of my life has been money. There's been times when the God of my life has been what other people thought of me. That was more important to me than anything else. There were times when the God of my life was my career, even as a minister. There's been times where this church has been my God. The truth is, there's a lot of times when other things are more important to me than God. For most of us, God is this like little thing that we put in a, he's kind of like, like a keychain. Like we pull it out when we need to get in the car, right? We pull it out when we need to get in the house. We, we pull God out when we get jammed up. We pull God out when we get laid off. We pull God out when we, get, when we get cancer. We pull God out when our wife leaves us. We pull God out, right? He's a lucky charm. But our lives don't revolve around them. Let's be honest. We have other gods. Number two, don't make any graven images. Don't bow down to them or pray to anybody else but me. How many of us have ever prayed to a grandmother, a grandfather? How about to St. Peter? You got a necklace with a favorite saint on it that you pray to? Do you realize that that's a complete violation of the second commandment? To pray to a saint or anybody other than God is a violation of the second. Now listen, we're too in and we're too deep already. Let's hope we pass the third. The third is, what is it? Don't take my name in vain. <laughs> I hear some giggles from some real potty mouths over here. <laughs> right? The fourth one is keep a Sabbath day. Jesus said man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man. Right? God gave us Sabbath to use to set aside one day a week that we would rest and worship God. You ever skipped church? You ever skipped worshiping God? You ever? Dude, I'm a preacher and I've skipped church. So we're four in, four deep. We better pass the next six and hope he grades on the curve or we're hosed. <laughs> Am I right? What's number five? Number five is honor your mother and father. Anybody who ever disrespected their parents? Everybody raise your hand or you're guilty of number nine. <laughs> right? Number six, don't kill. Oh, finally. <laughs> Maybe. And if you violated this one, don't tell us. We'll be scared of you. But then Jesus goes off and says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've hated somebody, you're guilty of murder them in your heart. If you've ever wished somebody was dead, that counted. Because God judges us not based on just what we do, but what we think and feel. So if hating somebody makes me guilty of murder... In the eyes of God on Judgment Day, I'm a murderer. So are you. The next one says, don't commit adultery. And while most of us haven't done that, Jesus then goes on and says in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you've ever lusted over somebody, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. So we are seven in and seven deep. Anybody passed any of them yet? Number eight, don't steal. <laughs> I don't think I need to convince anybody of this one. We steal hours on the clock. We steal product from the office. 
we steal answers on a test. Right? Number nine, don't lie. And if you haven't raised your hand on any, all of the other ones, you're, now raise your hand on this one. And number 10, don't wish that somebody else's stuff was yours. Truth is, I'm guilty of all of them. Bro, I don't pass nothing. So do I have sin that needs to be repented of, to be turned away from so I can turn to God? Am I separated from God by the things that I've done? Absolutely. Why does God want me to turn from sin and turn to him? Here's Paul's sermon going back to it in verse 32, 31. He says this. Here's why you need to repent of your sins and turn to God. Because God has set a day, verse 31, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. You know why you need to turn from sin and turn to God? Because there is a day that God has already put on the calendar where he will judge and he will be just. If God is good, God will not let bad people off the hook. And how many of us are bad people? How many of us have done bad? All of us. Now, if God is good, he will not let bad... You, if a judge let a guilty criminal go free just because they volunteered as a candy striper, we would not call that judge good. We call him crooked. So how can we hold God to a lesser standard than what we would hold to our elected judges at district county court? If God is good, then I will pay for my sins. If I don't pay for my sins, then God ain't good. If you don't pay for yours then God ain't good. But he says, listen, God is more interested in you making it past judgment day than even you are. Because his hope all along is that you would find your way to him and turn from the sin that separated you from him in the first place. That's always been his hope. And Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, Paul talks about this and he says, listen, knowing the rules doesn't make anybody good. He says the law, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, you guys think, and he was talking to a Jewish crowd, he said, you Jews think that you have an advantage with God because you already have God's laws. But does knowing God's laws make you innocent of breaking them? He says in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, he says the law and knowing the law only convinces me that I'm more guilty than I thought I was before I knew the law. Isn't that what just happened? You thought you were pretty much all set on judgment day when you stand before God, but now that you know the law by which you will judge, you know you're going to get a big 0%. And it's a pass or fail test. And if you ain't innocent of all 10, you're guilty of the one who, toward the one who wrote all 10. So in verse, that's why he says in verse 21, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with God without keeping the requirements of the law. Good, because I stink at that. I'm horrible at keeping the requirements of the law. Paul just made the case that knowing the law only makes me feel more guilty. So then he says, now God has shown us the way to be made right with him, even if we stink at keeping the rules. How many of us would say, that's good news for me? (laughs) 
Those of you who did not raise your hand, I refer you again to number nine. <laughs> Verse 20, 21. Uh, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. That's what it takes to be right with God is putting our faith in Jesus. Now, this is different than believing in Jesus because you're in church. I'm fairly confident that most, but not all, of you believe in Jesus. But like I said, we got the pocket good luck Jesus. But our faith isn't in Jesus. Our faith is in our careers. Our confidence, our hope, our dreams, our trust is in our money. It's in our savings account. It's in our investments. It's in our personality. It's in our acquired skills or our education. My hope, my confidence, my dreams, my trust, my faith isn't in Jesus. My good luck charm is Jesus. My faith is Citizens Bank. My faith is my job. My confidence is in everything but Jesus. My life doesn't revolve around him. Or does it? Can you honestly say that your faith, what your life revolves around, is the person, the character, and nature of Jesus. Because that's what it takes to be rescued from sin. Bro, Satan believes in Jesus. That's what 1 Peter says. Satan believes in Jesus more than you believe in Jesus. He's seen him, you haven't. Satan believes Jesus rose from the dead more than you believe Jesus rose from the dead because he saw it happen. But he ain't right with Jesus because he is unwilling to put his whole life around him. He won't put his faith and trust in him. You see what I'm saying? So you can believe in Jesus as a historical fact, but not be rescued from the consequences of your sin. Verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God with undeserved kindness, kindness that we did not deserve. We already established that fact by all of us being 100% guilty of 100% of God's law. We undeservedly receive his kindness. He declares that we are righteous. How can God declare me righteous? He does this. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. Because I recognize that there is a penalty for my crimes against God and my selfishness towards my fellow man. I'm freed from that in Jesus, it says, verse 25, because God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for my sins. Because God is love, because God isn't more interested in me being rescued from Judgment Day than even I want to be rescued from Judgment Day, God shows up in history as the person of Jesus, lives this life without breaking a single one of God's laws. He's the only one who earns immunity. And then he offers himself as a sacrificial payment for us in exchange giving us the immunity he earned. That's what happened. See, that's why I can't die for my daughter's sins. That's why I can't die for my son's sins. I've got my own sins to pay for. If the judge was going to allow somebody to take the place of somebody who was guilty, it would have to be somebody who is not guilty. Who here is not guilty? That's why we need Jesus. Jesus offers himself for us and offers to us his righteousness. The moment that I place my faith in him, I receive his undeserved kindness, grace. Peter, the very first time he ever preached this sermon, 
had an incredibly cool response to it. Acts chapter 2, it's going to be the last passage in the scriptures that we're going to read. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching to a hostile audience that think he's drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. So they're not friendly to him at all. Not friendly at all. God's Holy Spirit has filled him. He's speaking boldly. He was a coward just 50 days ago. And now all of a sudden he's being confident. Like the only kind of thing that would give you this kind of confidence is alcohol. Bro, you're flipping drunk. He's like, I'm not drunk. And this is his sermon. And you could read his whole sermon in Acts chapter 2. I'm only going to read excerpts from his sermon in Acts chapter 2. You can read the whole thing later if you want. But in verse 22, he says this. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Now, if you're a hostile audience, there's a lady on the second row here wearing a green top. And if you're a hostile audience, and I say to you, in my debate... This lady is wearing a red shirt, as you yourselves know. When you don't know it, you know it's green. Am I going to get the next sentence out of my mouth, yes or no? No, you're going to, if you're a hostile crowd, you're all going to rise up against me and shout me down. So when Peter's preaching and he says, Jesus was confirmed to be from God by the miracles, wonders, and signs that he did, as you well know, if he was lying, if Jesus didn't do those miracles and hadn't been raised from the dead, and they knew it not to be true, could he have gotten the next words out of his mouth, yes or no? What was their response? Cricket, cricket, cricket. Why? They knew it to be true. Jesus had resurrected from the dead and not just shown himself to his own followers. The Bible said he'd shown himself to hundreds, even thousands, 500 in even one clump at a time, he showed himself to. They knew this to be true. They had no response to this. But God, verse 23, knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life because death could not keep him in its grip. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you are seeing and hearing today. Verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and our Messiah, our rescuer from sin. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, then brothers, what should we do? So that's an appropriate response. See, if you know and if you remember and if you can stop being distracted for just long enough and recognize that there is a day that you will stand before God and be judged on the life you live, I promise you there's a lot of us that on that day are going to wish we could come back to this one right here in August 2015 and redo the rest of our life. And we're not going to get that chance because we already had this chance today. And we blew it. Or we didn't. So when we recognize on that day the standard that we will be judged by and we've already admitted that we will have to say that we are guilty of breaking all of God's laws and if God is good, He will separate me from Him for all of eternity in hell then, bro, that's got to change the way I live my life now. If there is a way for me to make it past that test, then, dude, you got to tell me what that is. This matters. This matters more than my IRA. 
This matters more than your 401. This matters more than your investment properties. This matters more than whether or not there's a corner office in your future. This matters more than the plaque on your wall. This matters forever, this matters. And if there's something I can do to pass this test, tell me. That is the only rational response after finding this out. And Peter tells them again what Paul already told. Here's his response. Verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's not a single person in the entire Bible who ever turns from sin and begins following Jesus and is not baptized. And there's not a single person in the, the entire Bible who's baptized who didn't first turn from sin to follow Jesus. Now, when does somebody actually go from being guilty to innocent? When is it in this process? It's when their faith transfers. So when did their faith transfer to Jesus? Was it when they got dunked in the water? By the way, everybody who's ever baptized goes down in the water. They never sprinkle them with them. You know why? Because the Bible says that baptism is a picture of your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the only thing that takes care of your sin. And you don't bury people by throwing dirt on their forehead. You bury people by putting them under the ground. And if you're going to symbolize that with water, you don't put water on their forehead. You put them under water. That's why every single person who's ever baptized in the whole Bible, go check it out. Read it yourself. Every single one of them go down into the water after they had already repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. So when is it? When does their faith transfer? Is their faith in Jesus when they come up out of the water? What, is it when they go under the water? Is it when they walk down into it? What if they died right before they walked down into it? Was there, did, did they spend eternity separated from God or did they, had they already demonstrated faith? Was it when they said amen after their prayer? Was it when they prayed, dear God, forgive me of my sin and rescue me from it? What if they died right before they said anything, but they died right as they were bowing their head? Like, when is the actual moment when the faith goes from everything else onto Jesus? When their hope confidence, their heart shifts from being self-centered to Jesus-centered. I don't exactly know for you when your faith transfers to Jesus. What I do know is that it's very clear what needs to happen. What needs to happen is that I need to get to the place where I'm sick of living with me in the middle of it because that's sin. Disobedience to God and selfishness towards you. Because that sin separates me from God and sent Jesus to the cross. And only when I'm sick of that am I ready to repent of it. Scariest verse in the Bible might be John chapter 6, verse 44, when Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless my father's drawing them. So you can't get right with God whenever you're ready. Because in this room right now, I'm preaching the same sermon to everybody. And some of you know you need to turn from sin because you right now are on a rocket ship to spend eternity separated from God forever. And others of you, you're on that same ship, but you don't care. What's the difference? It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with whether or not God's drawing you right now or not. Because there's times when you've been drawn to God. And there's other times when you haven't. You've been stone cold hearted towards it. What was the difference? God was drawing you that first time. He's not drawing you now. 
Or maybe you've been in other sermons and nothing, and nothing stuck. And maybe this time it's starting to stick. What's the difference? Bro, it has nothing to do with the preacher. It has everything to do with when God is drawing you. And you can only get right with God when God's drawing you. How do I know if God's drawing me? Do you have a desire to turn from sin and follow Jesus? Yes or no? Because the Bible says that nobody has the desire without the Holy Spirit's involvement. So if you right now are ready to turn from sin and begin following Jesus, then you can. Because right now God is drawing you. And if right now you're listening to this and you're like, I wish I cared, I just don't. I'm sorry. You can't. God's not drawing you. But don't freak out about it. Why would you want God to draw you to something that you don't even want? Maybe your prayer is, dear God, help me someday to want this. Or maybe you already do. But what I know is that what's true for you is what was the same thing that was true for them. You know what you need to do? Admit that you've sinned against a holy and righteous God, that you've broken God's laws, and if God is good, you deserve to be separated from him just like I do. But because God is love, he sent Jesus to be the sacrificial payment for the debt you owe. And if you will turn from your sin, God, I'm sorry, forgive me for all of it. Rescue me from it and save me. Then he will. And some of you guys already have. And your first step of obedience is to get your butt dunked. Why? To go public with your faith. So you know what I'm asking everybody in here to do? The same thing Evan Roberts asked everybody in Wales to do. It's the same thing every one of my neighbors need to do. I can't force them either, and I can't force you, but I can give you the opportunity. I'm asking everybody here to confess their sin and receive forgiveness in Jesus. That's the first thing I'm asking you to do. If you've already done that, I'm asking you to remove every doubtful habit from your life. What is the doubtful habit that you need to let go? Name it before God. Number three. I'm asking you to obey the Holy Spirit when he prompts you. Speak when he tells you to speak. Shut up when he tells you to shut up. Be generous when he tells you to be generous. Work hard. Love generously. Serve without condition. Every time the Holy Spirit prompts. And number four, don't keep your faith to yourself. It does nobody else any good that way. And the first thing you can do to go public with your faith is get your butt dunked. So here's what we need to do. Um, crud, I'm realizing I left a prop. I don't even know where it is. Hey, uh, Ellery, to me, Taylor, can you grab me one of each back there? So here's what we're going to do. In just a minute, we're going to pray. Uh, I, in the first service, I sit with my son, who's over here, but my prop is behind the stage over here. So I... That's, that's the issue. So Taylor's hooking me up. Um, what we're going to do in just a second is we're going to pray. And I'm going to give everybody in this room an opportunity to turn from sin and begin following Jesus. I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God privately and quietly. We're not going to all do this out loud. That would creep me out and make me very uncomfortable if everybody just started praying out loud. Thank you, buddy. And then some of you guys have already turned from sin and begun following Jesus, or you're going to do that here in just a minute. And I know from Scripture that your next step is to be baptized and go public. What you're saying when you get baptized, when you stand in the waters, you're saying that when Jesus stood up on the cross, he died on the cross for me. When Jesus was buried and you go under the water, you're saying when Jesus died on the cross and was buried, he, was died, he died on the cross and was buried for me. When you come up out of the water, you're saying that when Jesus rose from the dead with new life, Jesus rose from the dead to give me a new life too. See, the moment in just a minute when you pray and ask God to forgive you and take away your sin, to save you from it, that's when God commits to you. Baptism is when you put the ring on the finger. Baptism is when you say, I'm dead to my single man, 
and I'm a one-woman man for the rest of my life. That's what this ring does. Baptism says, I'm dead to my selfish, self-centered way of living. And from this moment on, I'm committed to following Jesus, regardless of what it takes or where it takes me. That's the prayer. Some of you guys, some of you guys honestly, you need to get baptized. That is your next step of following Jesus, and you haven't done it. My question is why? It's clear from the scripture that it's your next step of faith. Why won't you? We've been talking, it's been the communication card for weeks. Some of you guys are nervous, or I don't know what it is, but what reason do you have that would be good enough not to obey and follow Jesus? What reason, honestly, is going to be good enough not to follow Jesus on Judgment Day? Take the excuse you're using right now and offer that one to God when you stand before him, and we'll see how that goes. Now, some of you might say, I think I would do this, but I just wasn't ready. I didn't bring a towel, and this is where the props come in because we have 32 towels right over there. Taylor, raise your hand. He's got all the towels you need. Some of you guys would say, well, I would get baptized, but I didn't bring any extra clothes. I didn't, like, what am I going to, listen, I got the hookup for you. You got a shirt and a pair of shorts. We have them from small to triple X. Baby, we got everybody's booty, no matter how big, covered. We got your booty covered. Now, I have heard from Cha that certain ladies ain't going to get their hair wet if they didn't think about getting their hair wet when they left the house today. And we have shower caps for you. We'll baptize everything but your due. Because you just paid for that yesterday. I get it. We just don't want any excuses. But if your next step is to follow Jesus, we're going to give you a chance. So if you would bow your head with me. God, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this church family and what's about to happen right now in our lives. Now, my question to you is while your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, do you believe Jesus offered his life as a sacrificial payment for your sin, yes or no? Either you do or you don't. I can't make you if you don't. But do you, yes or no? If you do... Do you believe that he rose from the dead, yes or no? And did he do that for you? And this is about you and God. This isn't about me. I've already determined that for me. I'm asking this about you. And if you do believe, then my question is, are you right now ready to go all in as a follower of Jesus? Are you done with living with you in the middle of your life? And are you ready to put your faith, hope, trust, confidence in Jesus? Are you ready to turn from sin and selfishness to follow Jesus? Then tell him. It doesn't matter what you pray. It's your faith that saves you, not your prayer that saves you. It's God's grace through your faith with undeserved kindness rescues us from our sin when we simply place our faith and trust in Jesus. So do that. Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you and against others, and I really am sorry. Forgive me for all of my sin. Take it away. Wipe it off. Make me new and save me from it. Help me to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. I'm yours. It'll be messy. I'm not going to be good at it at first, but I'm committed to it. No matter what. And finish your prayer however you want. How many guys would say, Sean, nobody's looking around. I'm looking around the room. I don't see anybody looking. If I do, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. How many guys would say, Sean, this morning for the first time, that's, that's my prayer, man. That's me. Would you put your hand up and write back down real quick? 
real quick. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Some of you guys, you've already come to that place. You've already called on God to forgive you and save you. But since then, you haven't been baptized. Your mom and dad may have baptized you when you were a kid, and that was their way of bringing you into their faith. But now it's time for you to own your own faith. Now it's time for you to own it your own self. And you haven't been baptized yet, and you have no excuses. I need you to tell God, I'm ready. I'll be baptized. I'm ready to follow you, and it's going to start mattering to me right now. God, let your will be done in each one of our lives so that your will can be done through our lives. And we ask this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.